1897, the St. Louis Republic published something that shocked, scandalized, and excited its readers. The article soon spread like wildfire to newspapers across the United States, and as a result, men and women in cities across the country were talking about legs. But not just any legs, they were talking about women's legs, and more specifically, athletic women's legs. And even more specifically, they were talking about Tilly Anderson's legs. Tilly Anderson was the best female bike racer to emerge out of the bike racing craze of the 1890s. She raced against a group of highly trained and highly athletic women who grabbed the opportunity to race professionally and simultaneously shattered the notion that women were the weaker sex. On a day in 1897, Tilly revealed her bare right leg to a reporter, a physician, and an artist. The reporter and the physician began measuring and assessing, and the artist began drawing. When the drawing was published in Minneapolis at first and then across the country, a conversation began about beauty and sports and female strength, which is a conversation that continues today. And while some people viewed Tilly's muscular leg as horrible, others were simply impressed. And with that, the glacially slow process of normalizing the idea of women as athletes got a big boost. But that simple sketch of a woman's leg also revealed a story that, until recently, had been mostly lost to history. That Victorian women dropped their skirts and corsets to hop on bikes and fly around tracks in front of thousands of spectators. These women broke all the Victorian rules, but let's be fair, the rules needed to be broken. I'm Kristen, and this is Broadly Underestimated, the podcast dedicated to understanding the underestimated aspects of our lives. Every object, institution, historical event, even the most mundane, has its own revolutionary story. And it's often the underestimated women behind those stories that have shaped life as we know it today. I've always loved riding bikes, and in recent years, I've experienced a sort of renewed sense of love for them. So I got interested in their history, and I started thinking that bikes are ubiquitous. They're everywhere, but why? So that question led to a Google search, which led to another search and then another, which eventually brought me to the revelation of how profoundly bikes impacted the women of the late 1800s, which we talked about in the first episode of this bike series. But once I'd gotten clarity on the origins of the safety bicycle, which is essentially the bike that we ride today, and its immediate social impact in the 1880s and 1890s, I wanted to know what happened next. But as I searched for information on this, I was coming up blank. From my previous research, I knew that men famously raced on tracks throughout the 1890s, and I also knew that women were also involved in racing to some extent. But all I could find about it were a few isolated articles that didn't quite give me enough detail to really sink my teeth into. So I kept searching until I came across the book, Women on the Move by Roger Gillis. The moment I saw the cover, I knew I was getting somewhere cool. Below the title is the black and white image of five women racing around an outdoor track. A crowd pushes in around the edge, peering through the railing at the passing women. The racers are in tight formation, close enough to touch each other, and crouched forward over their handlebars. I had never seen an image like this of a woman from the 1890s. Even the photos of Victorian women wearing bloomers and knickerbockers for recreational bike riding were a world removed from what I was seeing in this photo. These women were intensely focused. They were wearing shorts. They were athletes. 
With every page of this book, the racing careers of these women and their subsequent social impact started to crystallize, and I knew I wanted to speak to Roger to gain more insight into this profoundly impactful and dynamic time in the development of professional female sports in the United States. So I reached out, hoping to speak with him about these women's stories that he captured in his book. Now, as far as I can tell, Roger has written the only book about women's track racing in the United States during the 1890s, and for reasons we'll get into later, this period in history was essentially forgotten, until the story came into Roger's life in a happenstance sort of way. Well, it's interesting. I always tell people I'm not a historian, and I had no special interest in cycling before I came across this material. So. Uh, like you, I learned about the material kind of uh, through that book, and uh, it was it was a great process. But I'm a writing professor. I, I'm the director of the Honors College at Grand Valley State University here in Michigan, and um, so I had the writing part, but uh, that's about it. So it was a it was a great project. I really enjoyed doing. Well, as far as I can tell, I mean, certainly your background led you into this in one way, but also kind of where you live also led you there in another. Can you kind of explain how you came across this story? Yeah, well, it's a it's serendipity up and down this uh, this process. Uh, we started off. So my wife is a children's book author. Her name is Sue Stoffaker, and in about 2006 or something, she was in a restroom in a restaurant here in Grand Rapids, and she saw a postcard, a vintage postcard on the wall, and it and it talked about Tilly Anderson. Actually, it just said Tilly the terrible Swede, um, the fastest bicyclist of her sex. And it had a picture of a hotel that still stands here in Grand Rapids um, from the late 1890s. And Sue, who has written a number of picture books and also middle grade novels, um, tends to write picture books about strong women. And she tr tries to uh, portray women as uh, you know, role models for young kids. So she was intrigued by that uh, description, fastest bicyclist of her sex, Tilly the Terrible Swede was kind of a cool uh, moniker. So she looked into it and found very little information, but enough information for a 16 page picture book, you know, or a 32 page, whatever they are. So she put together the picture book. She had, uh, her publisher is uh, uh, Knopf for Children, a division of Random House. So she had her editor working on it and everything. And in the midst of that project, she got an email from a woman in Kansas who turned out to be uh, Tilly Anderson's great niece. And so she's uh, about our age. Um, and actually had met Tilly when she was a, ch a young child um, and wrote to Sue and said, hey, I see that you're publishing a book about Tilly Anderson. I'm her great niece and I'd love to talk to you about it. Well, at that point, the, the material was already prepared so they weren't able to change the story itself and they didn't really need to, but they did use a lot of the images that, that Alice, her name is Alice Olson Repke, had in this uh, treasure trove of material uh, that she has in a trunk at her home and also scrapbooks that Tilly and her husband kept. So uh, they were able to use that as illustrations in the book. It was illustrated by a woman in uh, England named Sarah McNamini. Sue's lovely book, Tilly the Terrible Swede, was published in 2011 and covers Tilly's beginnings as a seamstress through her successful racing career. So that material was there and the book came out and to celebrate that book, Sue and I, actually Sue, decided that we could ride our bikes down to Chicago uh, where Tilly Anderson was from. Um, we had never ridden our bikes that far. It's, it's about 160 miles by highway, but it's about 250 miles by bike. And we decided to do it over five days. And we stopped at schools along the way. And she did author visits at the schools. Uh, 
um, as part of the ride. And she dressed up as Tilly Anderson in a nice wool outfit. And so we made our way down there and there we met Alice and her husband, Terry. And at that time, Alice said, you know, I love that you've done this children's book, but I'd really like to see a full biography of Tilly Anderson. And Sue really wasn't interested in writing that kind of book. I was a writing professor. We were standing on a corner of Chicago and like a lot of people, I feel obligations to help people. And uh, so it just kind of came out of me. Well, I've got a sabbatical coming up. I guess I could do it. And I had never done such a book, never done such a project. Um, but that next year, we took our spring break trip out to Kansas, where Alice lives, and checked out all this material. Um, and I started taking pictures of things, the scrapbooks, the photos, the newspaper articles, everything. And I didn't know at the time if it was an article, you know, I didn't know how much was there. I, is this an article? Is there really nothing written about this? So I thought, oh, I'll have to look into this and see if it's really new material. Um, and th the more I got into it, the more I just thought, it's, it's, there's plenty here, but it's not even about Tilly Anderson. Tilly Anderson's the star, but it's really about the whole era. And I, like you, I was shocked that there was nothing about it. And I mean, there was there were a couple of small, obscure articles in print over a hundred year period, you know, and that's it. Um, so um, I'm delighted to be able to enter it into the record, which is really what my goal was. I didn't have any grand ambition beyond just getting it out there and helping people know that this history existed. And I definitely agree completely with you that it's, it's about uh, women's sports history more generally. And it, it's an important part for all sports fans and all, certainly all women and all feminists and really anybody interested in American history should know that this era existed. What you'll soon see is that this was a significant era in sports history. Women raced on bikes for years and in many cities throughout the United States, but the fact that this history disappeared can be attributed to several things. One is that there wasn't really a national press at that time, so stories about these races were tucked away in local newspapers without a real way to connect them to a larger story. But the second and more significant reason that a concise record of these races doesn't exist is that although these women were trained athletes, they were getting paid to win races, they had sponsors, and they received constant press attention, they weren't technically professional racers. The League of American Wheelmen, which was the authority that reigned over professional bike racing in the United States during this period, refused to sanction races involving women. And without a formal regulatory body to make sure that the tracks met certain standards and that the statistical records of the races were being kept, Roger had to rely on newspaper reports and Tilly's family photos and documents to painstakingly piece together the history of these races. Luckily, the races involving these women were intense and dynamic and exciting, and so they drew in thousands of spectators, sometimes spilling outside the arena because they couldn't all fit inside around the track. So the newspapers had a constant incentive to report on what was happening in these races. Let's talk more about the sort of sports context that these women were in. Like, what were these races like themselves? What were they doing? Yeah, so really to understand the, the sport, we have to go back to the, really the 1880s. But first of all, it's all based on the development of what they call the safety bicycle. And I know you had a podcast a, a couple months ago about the bicycle boom, 
But in a nutshell, the bicycle boom was created by the development of the safety bicycle. And the safety bicycle was a impro big improvement over the high wheel bicycle of the 1880s, which had the, you know, four and a half foot tall front wheel. The, the wheel, it was direct pedal. So you, you did one revolution of your pedals. It was one revolution of the wheel. That's why it was so big. So they could go somewhat fast with that one revolution of the pedal. Um, the, the wheels themselves in the, on the high wheels were either wood or hard rubber, solid rubber. Uh, they were not fast bicycles. Um, nonetheless, there was, well, first of all, very few women rode them because it was dangerous. It was hard to mount. It was also easy to fall. Um, and of course, women wore skirts and dresses and it was not easy to get on the things. Um, and the Victorian era mores of the time discouraged women from doing anything that was dangerous. So, uh, and, and men were loath to allow them uh, to, to do such dangerous things. There was racing, but the bicycles were not fast. So the high wheels, I mean, so they would go, you know, 15, 16, 17 miles an hour, kind of at top speed. And they would, they could average 10 or 12 miles an hour over distance, uh, not great racing. So the, the, the contests tended to be endurance contests. So they would, uh, they borrowed actually a format from the old pedestrian races, if you can believe that, from the 1840s and 1850s, which was the six day race. And the six day race started off at midnight, Sunday into Monday, and was a continuous race all the way until Saturday night at midnight. So they would race virtually for 144 hours six straight days and they would have to rest and eat and sleep as they as they could so it truly was an endurance race um, and so some women did race in the 1880s and in fact there's a book um, that was published uh, about the same time mine was uh, called muscles on wheels and it was uh, it's, it's written by ann hall who's a canadian author and it's about the races of the 1880s by women um, my contention is that because they were essentially endurance races, they were a different animal, so to speak, uh, from the 1890s races. So anyway, the bicycles of 1890s, um, gear technology. So now one time around on the pedal could be three or five or eight revolutions of the wheel. And probably most importantly, Dunlop and others developed uh, the soft rubber pneumatic tire. So you could pump the tire up with air, much smoother ride, the seat came down, much easier to get on and off. You know, you could put your feet down just like we do. It's essentially a modern bicycle. I mean, you can look at these, you can look at photos of an 1896 bicycle and it looks like you could ride it down the street today and meet people wouldn't notice it that much. You ride a high wheel, everybody would know it, you know. So it was a, it was, it was a revolution of bicycles. And uh, as you learned a couple months ago, millions and millions of people bought bicycles in the 1890s, including women and children. Um, racing was actually slow to come back because part of the appeal of racing in the 1880s was that, that the bicycle itself was unusual, the, 18, the high wheel, it was an unusual, it was a novelty. So racing was another novelty, another level of novelty. Um, so the bicycle boom started in maybe 1893 and it wasn't until 1895 that really men and women started racing again. The men adopted the old format. Um, they pretty much stuck with that six day 24 hours a day format for racing. The women, however, um, through the work of their promoters and managers, 
decided, it really was the managers and promoters. I shouldn't say the women decided this. The, the managers and promoters decided, well, these are women. Uh, they're the weaker sex. Uh, we'll, we won't put them through 24 hours a day racing. Nobody would want to watch that, you know. So they reduced the races to two or three hours a day. They kept the, the six-day race format, but it was two or three hours a day. So suddenly, these women, and we can talk more about where they came from and who they were, but these women were racing in packs of five or six for two hours instead of 24. And so they went fast. They went as fast as they could. And they would go, they would average 22 miles an hour over two or three hours. And they would hit top speeds of 30 or 32 miles an hour. And they were racing around small tracks. So it was a fascinating and dynamic race. I liken it in my book to uh, roller derbies on roller derby on bikes. You know, it really was like that. Um, so, uh, yeah, and it, and it took off and it became a phenomenon all across the country. It was primarily most popular in the Midwest here where I am. Um, many races in Michigan and Illinois and Minnesota and Ohio and all through that region. But it really was coast to coast as well. You know, the women would uh, would choose different levels of gearing. So they only used one gear the whole race, but they could set their gears at a different level. So some women liked it to be harder to pedal, in which case you could go faster. Some liked it easier to pedal, in which case you're a little bit more nimble. Um, so they were all different, you know, just like uh, the characters they were. So these women would be racing just two to three hours a day for six days straight. The degrading piece was the assumption that women couldn't possibly withstand the same type of grueling feats of endurance that the men could. But the beautiful thing that came out of this was that in contrast to the men who were all about pacing themselves over the course of the week, the women were going fast. And the shorter nature of the races made their hours on the track more dynamic and more intense, and therefore more entertaining. But now that I understood more about the general parameters of these races, I wanted to know who these women were. Understanding that just riding a bike recreationally at that time came with all kinds of social baggage. I can only assume that racing for money while wearing next to nothing from the Victorian perspective could not have been a step to be taken lightly. So I wanted to know who would have had the guts to sign up for a race. Let's talk a little bit more about like who these women were. So where were these women coming from? What were their backgrounds? Why would they do this? What's interesting about it is that it was not a... Uh, an accepted practice to either participate in sporting contests or to ride bicycles. Um, and certainly not to wear the outfits that the women were wearing to, to race the bicycles. So these were not women that were coming from, you know, uh, middle class or high society, either of those. They were definitely working class women who were first drawn to the sport through advertisements in the paper when a promoter would say, hey, we're gonna have a bicycle race. And I'm talking back in the 1880s too. We're gonna to have a bicycle race next week. If you're interested, come on down for a tryout. You know, so, um, and there's prize money. You know, so uh, they were drawn by that prize money. And this is at a time when working class women would maybe work in laundries or work at seamstresses or work as servants. And they were making a couple dollars a week. You know, that's, that's what they were making. And it was hard, hard work. I mean, a, a laundry worker is, is very hot and humid and hard work, you know, eight, 10 hours a day. 
and the work week back then was six days. So it was, it was a, quite a life. And then all of a sudden there's the possibility of riding a bicycle for 25, 50, $100, $200 even in a single week if you, if you can win. So yeah, they flocked to it. And um, I shouldn't say flocked. I mean, it still wasn't a tremendous number of women, but um, some women were drawn to it, but, but they tended to be immigrants. They tended to be working class. They tended not to be interested in making some kind of political statement. They were there because they wanted to make some money and to have fun. You know, they enjoyed riding bicycles. Tilly, who, you know, is really the centerpiece of the, of the era because she was the best rider by far. Tilly was a, a Swedish immigrant, came to the United States in the early 1890s, saw the bicycle boom in 1893 and 1894, was working as a seamstress and as a laundry worker, saved up enough money to buy a 40 pound bicycle and started racing or riding rather when she was uh, 18 or 19. And by the time she was 20, she started racing. At that time, riding bikes was often a popular weekend activity and also a fantastic means of transportation. But Tilly took this to the next level. She would often get up extra early before 5 a.m. and ride somewhere between 20 to 40 miles before breakfast, then work a full day, and then hop on her bike again in the afternoons to ride around Chicago and on nearby country roads. She would do these 100-mile rides and was so good at them that she actually got a sponsorship from a bicycle manufacturer. And by January of 1896, she entered her first six-day race. With that said, I do think that there is one very interesting figure that stands out, which is Dottie Farnsworth. She was very different from the rest, right? Can you yeah. talk a little more about her? Right. So Dottie is the anomaly because she came from a fairly well-to-do family in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And uh, she went to a, a nice girls boarding school in St. Paul. Uh, her, her father was a millwright and owned mills in the area and, and their family was fairly prominent. And um, she was, a, I think she, I, you know, there's not a lot known about these women personally. So I'm inferring some and, and then and gleaning it from the articles that I've read. But uh, I think she was a renegade from the beginning because she wanted to go into the theater. And even the theater back then, I think, was a place for people who I mean, ballet was one thing, but the theater, you know, uh, would be something that only lower class people or women would really get involved with. That, that was her goal. Um, but then at some point in, I think, 1895, uh, she, that Minneapolis was really the, the beginning of this style of women's bicycle racing. So she was right there. And so she answered the call. And uh, according to her the, her, the first time she raced, maybe even the first couple of times she raced, she did it under a pseudonym so her family wouldn't know that she was doing it. And then she got uh, good enough and she was starting to make some money that she went ahead and, and used her name. And there are a couple of instances when in 1896, for example, there was a race when things got out of hand, actually. It's one of the great stories of the era where the day, the, the day of the last, on Saturday, the last day of the race, Dottie was ill and was unable to compete and uh, Tilly showed up and they had other racers too, but it was ba basically between Tilly and Dottie to finish the race. And because Dottie couldn't race, the fans were really upset and there were a couple thousand people there ready to race and Tilly, uh, Dottie wasn't there. Uh, long story short, it ended up basically with a riot because they, the promoter said, no, we're going to race. They started a race and the fans were throwing things and breaking down fences and just going crazy. But uh, during that, 
the coverage of that event, they mentioned that Dottie's parents were in the crowd. And so they embraced the sport enough to kind of support her. But she, but her mother was also quoted as saying, you know, something along the lines of, I told you so, you know, <laughs> I knew this would happen. You know, you shouldn't be doing this. But, uh, and Dottie, so in the races, Dottie was always the flashiest of the women. She, I think she wore the most makeup. Uh, I think they were encouraged to wear makeup, partly because these people were, you know, not all of them were very close. So in order to see their features and to see them, they would wear makeup. Um, plus it was the 1890s. And, um, but Dottie always wore flashy outfits. Uh, uh, she had a stylish curl on her forehead always. And, and she's pretty. I mean, we have pictures of her. And, 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 um, and she also played to the crowd more than the other women. And I think unlike Tilly, who was all about winning, I mean, she really was the model early professional women, woman's ath woman athlete. Uh, Dottie was more of a show person. And so she was, she would, if the crowd were, was urging her to try to take the lead, she would, even if it didn't make sense in the context of the race. Um, and so that she suffered a little bit for that. Um, I hope it's not a sexist term, but I kind of call her the bridesmaid of the era because she, she did come in second uh, an awful lot. And I think, so she was a very good racer, but she wasn't a great finisher. Um, so she, you know, it's such early days in athletics, in spectator sports. It's such early days, 1890s. Uh, all of this was being figured out. There, there, is no, there was no history to draw from. So just the idea even of developing a, leg a sports legacy was something that they probably didn't even think about. You know, um, So Dottie, instead of earning $250 for first place, would earn $150 in second place. She was probably pretty happy with that. I don't think um, it mattered that much to her whether she was first or second. Um, Tilly and some of the others, it really mattered. It's kind of talking about just how much money these women were making. Can you give me like the women who were like Tilly and Dottie who were racing consistently, who were winning pretty consistently, how much money would they have been making? Yeah, so I think uh, Tilly made generally for the three or four prime years of the era, she was making five or $6,000 a year. And as I say in the book, the average working class family at that time, actually, I should just say the average American family at that time was making about $600 a year. So it's, you know, the equivalent probably of close to a million dollars or $800,000 or something in a year at that time. Um, there was, I, I've seen contracts. Alice had a couple of contracts. So I've actually seen that they, they were contracted to earn $250 for winning a race. And then they also were often matched by their, uh, the manufacturer of their bicycle. So like NASCAR racers, they represented bicycle manufacturers. Part of the bicycle boom was that there were dozens and dozens and dozens of bicycle manufacturers in this country. Uh, every city had one or two, every large city had one or two, at least bicycle manufacturers. And so they were eager to promote their brand. So they would uh, uh, ask the racers to represent them and then they would splash that on their, on their uniform or, or outfit. Um, so, so Tilly and Dottie and some of the other prominent racers would, would earn money like a weekly salary basically from their promoters or from their manufacturers and then they'd win prize money. Um, there was some talk later of actually throughout the era, there was some talk that maybe the prize money wasn't as great as they claimed, because it was one way to sell tickets was, you know, $250 for the first prize, come see the women race for this. Um, and some of the 
uh, modern day references to the sport that I could find often dismissed it as a kind of a, a theatrical show as opposed to a sporting event. But like I said, I've seen a contract. Um, I know that Tilly made uh, at least a couple of times the money that she was purported to, to make. And um, even if it's half of what I just said, five or 6,000, even if it's half of that, she was making a heck of a lot more money than she would have. Can we talk about what the sort of standard outfit for racing looked like? Sure. So first of all, we'll go back to the Bloomer era from the 1850s. Amelia Bloomer was a, a kind of a fe early feminist, and she advocated, as many others did, um, what they called rational dress, which was instead of wearing clothing that, you know, either bound you and made you very uncomfortable or in deformed your body, literally, or just made it very difficult for you to function as a person, you know, uh, petticoats and, and skirts and hats and everything, just make it hard to live a life other than the life of walking down the street with, a, with an umbrella over your head, you know. Um, so rational dress became popular, at least among some women uh, in the 1850s and later. They kind of fell out of favor, those bloomers. Um, but then in the 1880s, when women were trying those high wheel bicycles, they, you know, they really couldn't wear dresses <laughs> and ride those. So they took to the bloomers again. In, the 18, in 1895, when, the, when these women started to race, at first they were wearing fairly loose clothing uh, akin to the bloomers with maybe um, jackets over their uh, shirts and hats even. And, but pretty soon it was pretty obvious, if you wanna ride fast, you need to dress a little bit more sleekly. You know, you can't, you can't do that. So, uh, they adopted, essentially, it looks very much like a, a, a bicycling outfit today, uh, but made of wool. So they had wool, basically wool bicycle shorts, uh, a tight woolen shirt or jersey. Um, the, the one thing that they had to do was cover their skin, except for their hands and their face. So it was not accepted for them to have bare legs or bare arms. So they wore hosiery basically or tights down to their wrists and tights on their legs um, but um, but there was no question that they were women it was a form-fitting outfit and so uh, spectators could certainly tell that they what their bodies looked like you know and um, the, most of the women who talked about how their families reacted talked about how those costumes or outfits uh, were unacceptable to their families and they would be like Dottie's parents or even Tilly's parents, um, not parents, but Tilly's family, uh, were hesitant to kind of condone wearing that kind of an outfit. But I think, um, you know, you have to say it, it contributed to the popularity of the sport. And I think it goes both for men and women because the men I think were there for, you know, relatively purient reasons. They enjoyed watching the women in these outfits, but I think the women found a kind of liberating uh, strength from that. And they admired the women for standing up for that kind of equality. Um, the men were racing in very similar outfits, but with bare arms and bare legs. So the women were close, you know, and it was a step forward for them. Now, of course, if we're being honest, the fact that these ladies were a bit scantily clad was one of the draws to the sport. But another draw was to see women in an aggressive, assertive, and powerful position that was so anathema to the standard nurturing domestic image of women of the time. 
many spectators in the crowd would have never before seen a woman do what these racers did, demonstrating sheer physical power and endurance and withstanding pretty extreme crashes and injuries and, quite frankly, making a good living while doing it. All of these things added up to a modern woman living in the 1890s, but though they weren't particularly vocal about it, these women's actions overshadowed whatever common arguments there were about women's athletic limits. Now, that doesn't mean that doctors, journalists, and everyday people didn't spout all kinds of conspiracy theories about the dangers that bikes pose to women. So let's jump back for a moment to the previous episode in this series. Remember that Victorian women's health was so pathologized that it was as if they were emotional grenades that could be set off at the slightest disruption. And not only that, according to Victorian wisdom, apparently anything other than sitting and walking could somehow make women's reproductive systems spontaneously combust and stop working. So people had real concerns about bikes and how they might impact the well-being of women and the propagation of the species. Not to mention, apparently bike racing could make you ugly. There were consistent references in newspapers to something called bicycle face, which was apparently a snarling facial expression that came on as a result of strenuous bike riding. And apparently, this expression could become permanent. So watch out, girls. These women, you know, as you describe them and as they seem, are, were truly athletes. They trained hard. It's something they had very, very strong, especially Tilly, very strong, strong sort of training um, schedules. Can you talk about that a little bit? I think the women were um, pioneers in the idea of getting into condition. And if you think about it, athletic conditioning is, is a relatively recent human phenomenon, you know, there would be no reason for someone in the 1300s to be you know, in condition for an athletic contest. So people were strong because they had to do work, but they didn't have to build up their cardiovascular uh, capacity or anything like that, unless they, I don't know, had a specialized job they had to do. Um, so it was relatively new for men to be in condition, but the idea of a woman being in condition, a, a woman training in order to build muscle and to, and to develop endurance was a very strange concept to people. Um, diet was not very well understood. So, uh, you know, everybody was just doing the best they could. They, I think that the simple kind of calculus was if you eat a lot of muscular meat, you will gain muscle, <laughs> you know? Um, so, uh, that's what these women did. They, they ate a lot of, uh, meat and dairy products to build up muscle. They lifted weights, uh, they boxed one another and, and their trainers. They, of course, rode on, on the bicycle in the summertime. In the wintertime, if, if they were living in a place with winter, they would um, use home trainers and lift up the back wheel and you know, have it spin. Um, and uh, they became uh, what most of us would today consider attractive in terms of their uh, physical look. But to, but to people back then, it was pushing the edge of even kind of monstrous looking, you know, or uh, unappealing. And this is where we circle back to that infamous newspaper article that included a printed drawing of Tilly's leg. The reaction to that leg spoke volumes about a society and a culture on the verge of change. Some of the viewers looked at it and recoiled in horror and others viewed it and said, you know, what an interesting change in our culture is happening. Um, Tilly was proud of her muscles. And, uh, and I think 
felt like she was becoming a better person. She felt she would thrive, you know, for her whole life because of her good conditioning. And she turned out to be right. She lived to 90, 90 years old. So it worked for her. But at the time, people were afraid that the women would not be able to bear children. They would, um, you know, shorten their lives considerably. And maybe most importantly at the time, they would be unattractive to men and they would thus become old maids. <laughs> you know, what's interesting about that article that you're referring to and also how you lay it out in your book is that they juxtapose the drawing of Tilly's leg with sort of this very sort of soft, uninterrupted line drawing of another woman's leg who looks like she's not muscular, juxtaposing kind of this, you know, monster versus this soft feminine object. But I think it may sound strange, but I actually find there's a through line, you know, in women in cycling, legs are a focal point. In the beginning, you know, when women were just getting on bikes recreationally, right? It was about getting into outfits that freed their legs, but then suddenly they're not even showing bare legs. They're just showing the shape of their legs. But the idea that women have legs and they can be seen in their form is shocking. And here again, we have this, you know, really being put in people's faces. You know, women have legs and they can use them. Yeah, that's right. I think it is a, it's a through, it's, a, it's something that, that existed throughout women's sports, not just women bicycle racing. Um, when I was a, teenager back in the 70s, um, Martina Navratilova was a, a kind of coming on as a, a new star in the sport. And I remember a Newsweek or Time article that showed a photograph of her forearm. And it was exactly the same. It was uh, showing all the veins and musculature of this woman's arm. And, you know, at the time, Chris Everett was the other great star of the sport. Chris Everett was like Dottie in the sense that she was the more feminine and kind of uh, traditionally attractive uh, athlete, whereas Martina came on the scene and, and at that time was seen as like kind of a little bit too muscular, a little bit too masculine. And um, so, and that's the 1970s. And I think with Serena Williams and Simone Biles and other people today, it's still an issue, you know, it's still something that our culture is, is, is wrestling with, you know, uh, how do we collectively feel about women's bodies and, and, and what does that mean? You know, and, and that's, you know, again, a reason for this book to exist, I think is that it's important for all of us to understand that this is something that does go back to the 1890s, that, that issue goes back a long, long ways. And the conversation is so similar, unfortunately, right? Like it continues now it has evolved, thankfully, right? But, you know, they're having conversations about what women are wearing then and we're still having them now. And, um, you know, back then, in some cases, women were pushing to wear less. And now, for example, as we saw with gymnasts in the, the recent Olympics, some are pushing to wear more. Um, so it's, it's a constantly kind of shifting conversation. The multiplicity of what women's bodies can be and mean is a primary concept that comes to light in sports. Our Victorian bike racers confronted the one-dimensional female image by presenting a powerful idea of alternatives. That women can be many different things, and often all of them at once. 
So our racers would exemplify this principle during a six-day race in 1898, when several of them lay splayed on the track, bloody and bruised after a high-speed pileup. One racer lay unconscious, while another appeared to have a broken leg. That they had jumped into a wool bodysuit was their first strike against the Victorian female image. That they had entered the race and put themselves in a position to be so injured in the first place was the second strike. But that they might consider picking themselves up and re-entering this crazy game of roller derby on bikes was a nail in the corseted coffin. Tune into the next episode in this series to find out just how crazy these races could get and just how far these women were willing to stretch the boundaries of athletics, gender roles, and pain. And now it's time for a segment I call The Stacks. Doing research is one of my favorite things to do. The more you learn, the more the puzzle pieces of the world start to come together. So I want to take you into the stacks of the library with me to share favorites of the books, documentaries, movies, interviews that I think you would enjoy if you want to learn more about this topic. First of all, Sue Stoffaker's Tilly the Terrible Swede is a wonderful children's book. It has lovely illustrations that beautifully show the societal forces that Tilly Anderson was up against in her impressive racing career. So if you're looking for a darling children's book with an empowering message, I recommend Tilly the Terrible Swede. Now, as we spoke about earlier on in the episode, Roger Gillis's book, Women on the Move, is such a thorough chronicle of women's bike racing in the 1890s. Roger's main hope with covering this history was to get it on the record, and his book has accomplished this beautifully. So if you're interested in gaining a wider breadth of knowledge about these incredible women and the conditions that they raced under, as well as a play-by-play of many of the races, I highly recommend Women on the Move. Thanks so much for listening. Please be sure to rate and review the podcast and connect with me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Woman in Time. And we'll see you next time on Broadly Underestimated.